Yippee-ki-yo, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 176 of the Becoming Human podcast, and I'm your host, Will Nelson. This episode features Katie Hankey, a woman who has overcame immeasurable adversity from weighing 380 pounds, having 26 medical diagnoses, taking 50 prescriptions, struggling with chronic depression and anxiety, and developing addictive habits around eating, opioid, and alcohol use. In this episode, she shares what it was like to go through the worst of the worst of her experiences, how she had gotten there, and the strategies she had found to get herself out and really get to the explore why she was there in the first place. Before we get to the episode, I'm going to play you in with a song by Trevor Hall called Great Storm Clouds. You can find the link to the song in the show notes. Without any further ado, here we go. Up and down it goes like a great wave across my own home. All the questions of the mind trying to find a way to show That I got darkness, I got light, I got everything in between Don't deny any side, I don't cut branches off my Storm clouds holding rain. It's part of nature to hold a bit of bed. All in all, that rain falls and then we watch a new thing grow. Watch a new thing Oh, 
right, Katie. So you you showed me what thirteen hundred pages of like of um of medical information that that you had gone through from being uh, overweight and having a variety of like uh, illnesses. Yes, um, I have a thirteen hundred page medical record from um, the last twenty one. Well, not the last twenty one years, but from the age of eighteen to the age of about thirty nine. Wow. It's, it's, um, a lot. There's, there's many, there's a, uh, let's see here. I have a, I have a little cheat sheet here because it take too long to count them all. <laughs> um, it, I had, uh, I believe over 50 medications and over 30 diagnoses over the oh. course of that time of just different problems I had that I dealt with. And, um, yeah, it's a lot, it's a huge record. How'd all that, how'd that happen? Did you have these illnesses when you were a kid? No, um, it, it, you know, it progressed. It, it started as um, me feeling depressed after I went to college and it didn't work out the way I thought it would. Um, mm. I was, I went to play soccer at Portland state university and uh, I had like a partial scholarship, like a half, half ride or whatever you want to call it. Were you really and, excited about <clears throat> going to play soccer? Was that? Like oh, I was so excited. Life it was, goal? it was like a dream, right? Cause I, I, I really wanted to play soccer in college and, and, um, it was division one. So I was super excited about that. And, um, I, I, I went to a school that was about a hundred miles away from my hometown. Um, so it's a little ways, a couple hours. I didn't know anybody. And so that was hard. Um, and, um, I just, I started going to parties and drinking and I didn't think much of it the time because it just seemed like it just seemed like what you did you know when you went to college it just seemed like okay and it, it it wasn't okay it wasn't okay in any way and uh it, it quickly became a problem the more i drank the more classes i would miss the worse grades i would get and uh the less time i would get to play because mm-hmm. i was missing practices and and it was evident to the coaches that i i was i wasn't eating well either so I, I had started, you know, gaining weight and my fitness level was going down and in all my free time I was drinking. So it, it was that really when, started snowballing right then. Before you went to college, did, were you educated by anyone like on like drinking habits or best practices or anything like that? Or no, in, in high school, in fact, I was, I don't really recall ever drinking or using anything. Um, I was very focused on athletics and academics and um, I didn't have a 4.0, but it was like three point something. And um, I, I always tried really hard in, in school and sports. And, you know, I had family members that had struggled with alcohol, but, but that was never going to be me. You know, that was what I told myself. That wasn't going to be me. I wasn't going to have any sort of substance problem because I, you know, I saw that coming, you know, like that's what I said. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the drinking, basically I drank my way out of college and, um, and that was hard, you know, and then, and over the course of the next, let's see, uh, over the course of the next like 14 years or something, I, you know, I was diagnosed with, with so many different conditions. I mean, I, I can just say a few here. I had, I had, um, well, I had like joint pain throughout my body. I had a uh, fibromyalgia. I had uh, degenerative disc disease. I had uh, a lot of a lot of different things. I had were were um, 
we're all medicated. Did the fibromyalgia, was that something that, that just started coming up as you were spiraling in your health or um, that, you know, I didn't get diagnosed with that until I had gained so much weight that I was, you know, at the top, I was close to 400 pounds mm-hmm. and, um, and I was having widespread pain throughout my whole body. Um, but you know, at the same time, I wasn't moving much. I wasn't working my, I wasn't moving my body like a human's body's meant to move. Did you, I would sit and eat. Did you miss though? Like you like to play soccer, like beyond performing, right? Like beyond the the goal of being able to compete. Did you enjoy playing? Oh yeah, I did. I, you know, I, I, there was a point after, after college, college, the initial college where I did join like a city league team. Mm -hmm. And, um, I had still at that point, I'd probably still gained like, I was probably closer to 300 pounds, but I still played soccer and, and, and tried. And, and I, I got enjoyment out of it, but you know, at that point I, I had a big food addiction problem and I just didn't realize it. You know, it had been, that had been developing since I was a kid. And I just, I didn't realize that there was a connection between eating for comfort and addiction. Mm. And, um, and I'll be the first to say that there's not always a connection, you know, just because you eat for comfort doesn't mean you're an addict to food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, it definitely was, um, it, it, I would, I would just stash all sorts of, of, uh, candy and, and crappy food in my room. And when I got stressed out, I would eat it. And, and it, it became almost like a little crutch I used, you know, when I was having a hard day, I would just eat more candy or, or more chocolate or more donuts or whatever it was that I was eating that time. And, and I felt better and, you know, I would move on because it it seemed, it seemed like it was working. You know, I didn't see into the future or see the potential for this becoming this huge deal for me. I, I was just a kid and I thought, this is what you do when you're stressed out. You know, you, you find something to help you feel better, something or someone. And, um, and, you know, over the years, over the course of, of 20 years and, and to t- till today, I've realized that a lot of times there isn't something or someone that can help you feel better. It, it, there are things that can help you ease symptoms. I'll, I'll, I'll agree to that. Um, but the causal elements that come into play as to why you're feeling the way you do are, are things that need to be dealt with. Otherwise you're just putting a bandaid over, mm. over the problem. And, you know, and that's what I did. I, I bandaided my problems, so to speak for, for 20 years, trying to, trying to, you know, make my head feel better with this medication or, or make my body feel better with this medication. And, and I had gotten, um, I'd gotten the fibromyalgia diagnosis and at, at that time I was taking, um, five concurrent segments. So I was taking five different psychotropic medications they had put me on. And, and, and to this day, I'm not exactly sure how they knew what was doing what, you know, at the time it seemed, it seemed like the right thing because, well, they, they told me I needed them and that it would help me feel like less anxious or less depressed or less suicidal or, or more confident or, you know, whatever they told me it would help me feel. Was that what um, the psychotropic drugs were for? Like, were they medicating you because, or were those medications given to you at the time because you like, you had feelings that you had that, that were really uncomfortable and you just talked to your, um, your doctor and then you got those prescriptions. Like they tried to help you in there, the way that they help, which is prescribing or. 
Um, yeah, you know, I got the first one when I was 18, right after, right after college. And it, it was just, it wasn't even, it was just a doctor that was in the town I was living in. And, um, I'd met him for 10 minutes, talked to him and took this little test on this device. I can't remember what that test is called. I'm sure some of your listeners know, but it's basically an assessment that, that, uh, the score will tell you the severity of depression and or anxiety you're feeling. And they base, they base that on, on what diagnoses to give you and whether you need treatment or not. Did you go to him feel it because you were depressed or are you just like going to him for a checkup or something? No, I was feeling really, really distraught, depressed, just really bad about myself for what had happened at college. And Mm -hmm. um, I I felt like it it was the only thing I, I had to do. You know, I didn't have anybody else other than, you know, I had my, my mom, but she was going through a lot of stuff and I had my dad and he was going through a lot of stuff. And, um, I, I didn't, you needed I didn't know what else to do. And, and then also I'm not saying that it's always a bad choice to take mm-hmm. a medication. Um, I think there is a time and a place for them. Um, but I don't think that 20 years of them was the right choice. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that telling someone that they can expect to be on them forever is, is a good idea. Whether they are or not is, is a whole nother issue in my opinion. Um, and, and what they make peace with in their mind is, is in their mind, but is, is their choice. But I don't think that it should be uh, front run from a health professional that this medication will probably be some sort of lifelong thing you have to deal with forever. Um, because it, in some ways, it, it takes away your control over, over what's happening. And you're, you're putting it all into the hands of this medication. And, you know, and then choices you make or successes you have are because of the influence on your mind and, and, and not because of, of you. And, and that's the way I felt, at least. And um, I was going to tell you, you know, at, at, at the time, they had me on five different psych meds. So when they started me, they started me on, on one. I think it was like Prozac and it didn't really work. Gave me some weird feeling in my throat. I didn't like, and then they put me on Paxil, which I didn't, didn't work. And then they put me on, um, I think Zoloft. I've been on so many different ones, but at this specific time, when I had the fibromyalgia, I was on Effexor, which is a medication that works for depression and anxiety. It has a really short half-life. And so you have to take it. You have to make sure you take it every 12 hours because you really will go into withdrawals very quickly off of that one. It's a very, it's a very reactive medication. Um, and, and it felt like it was working for what it needed to do, but it was very fickle because if you missed it, then, then you gotta watch out. So I was taking that. I was taking Abilify, which is actually classed as an antipsychotic. And so um, they put me on that because I had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And there are features of that condition, which can be um, uh, like paranoid delusions and things mm-hmm. like that. So they put me on that. I was also on Lamictal, Trazodone, and Ativan. Oh, and Adderall. And so, Adderall. And Adderall. So actually six, I misspoke. So, um, the Abilify was a tough one because it can contribute to um, type two diabetes. It, it so they put me on a low dose, but what I got from it is I got um, a condition which I have written here, so I don't forget what it was called. Um, it was a condition that you can get when you take Abilify 
Um, it makes you shake. It's called acute neuroleptic induced ecthesia. And so what happens is your body will have like little jerky movements sometimes you can't control. Um, and so I started getting that. Um, and then the, the lamictal, in my opinion, I had the worst side effects from the, like that wasn't even the worst. The shaky mm-hmm. thing wasn't the worst to me. Wow. The lamictal also known as lamotrigine. That's the, that's the generic name for it. Um, gave me such bad short-term memory loss um, that friends I had would, would actually get upset with me and be like, don't you remember we were supposed to be getting together Friday? And I, I don't even remember having the conversation. Whoa. So it was really scary. starting to affect my, my brain and, and, and my memory. And, and that really freaked me out a lot um, as far as, as where I was headed. And, and the Adderall was for the ADHD I'd been diagnosed with. And, you know, that's definitely an upper. So it was, it was a, a huge, like, you know, uh, amount of, of different medications going into my brain. And I'm not sure how they knew what was doing what. You know, I, I I don't think that the doctors had bad intentions or anything, but I also don't think that the five or six medications I was taking necessarily should have been at the same time at all. That's Um, crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, from the doctor's perspective that you spend your, you know, you spend your whole life learning how to use these tools and and learning how to diagnose the human, like the human, right. Um, And use those tools. So it it always makes sense to me. In, in terms of like how doctors solve problems and I don't really fault them on the way they solve problems because it's just kind of what a doctor does. Yeah. They have a, it's a very linear model, the way that they solve problems. And that's not a bad thing because very often health problems are linear or they're degenerative. You know, they start at one spot and you end at another spot, <clears throat> but sometimes there are multiple things happening in your life that a doctor doesn't deal with, you know, um, just as far as like a lot of times doctors won't ask you about like your lifestyle, how much sleep you're getting, what kinds of foods you're eating. They won't, they'll look at the symptoms and they'll treat the symptoms and not the cause. And that's, that's not to fault them. That's the model. That's, that's what it's designed to be like, but it doesn't work for everybody. You know, it works for some people, but not everybody. And a lot of the people I work with are people that have been in the medical system and understand that there's some things that, that they aren't able to help them with. And, and a lot of the times it requires, you know, taking a, a, a step back and looking at your life as an observer or taking a holistic look at your life and seeing how everything is affecting you at once. You know, how much sleep are you getting? What kinds of foods are you eating? How often are you eating? When are you eating? Are you moving? Okay. When, how, how much, um, what's your social life like? Do you have do you have support in your life socially and emotionally? Um, do you have people that are close to you that, that can help you with things? You know, and do you, are you employed? How does that work? You know, and doctors don't have time for that. You know, usually a doctor's appointment is very short, especially today. In today's society, it seems you go in 10, 15 minutes, you're in, you're out. They make sure that they're checking all the things for your symptoms. You know, obviously there's variants in there. Some appointments are longer. Um, but for the most part, it's not a real, they don't have a lot of time to sit there and, and listen to your problems and try to figure out how to help you all at once. And so um, you had asked a while back, and I talked a lot about the fibromyalgia. Um, at the time I was diagnosed with that, I was in a lot of pain, um, just joint pain, mus- muscular pain. 
and, and, um, I couldn't, I couldn't even walk a block without, without having to stop and rest because my body hurts so bad. My back hurt, my hips hurt, my feet hurt. Um, and so I went to the doctor and I was prescribed Percocet, uh, which is most people probably know, but it's an opioid medication, very strong. Um, they, it's a combination of oxycodone and Tylenol. Usually it's five milligrams of oxycodone and 325 milligrams of Tylenol. Um, side note, I had a friend once referred to me as the pharmacist because not because I provided drugs, but because <laughs> I had taken so many and I knew so much about so many different medications that I could just tell them all about the medication before they got it. But um, so I, I was taking um, Percocet and it, I was taking a lot of it, right? I got, I got like a hundred and something a month. And so I was taking a lot of it. And then, uh, you know, that wasn't cutting it. I was still having pain. And uh, so then I got prescribed morphine on top of it. And morphine oh. is a lot like heroin as far as the, the structure of the, the medication, how it acts on your body, the withdrawals, all of it. Um, you know, heroin is probably the one substance I've never used. Um, and I'm grateful for that, but I did use a lot of morphine. So uh, I was taking at the height of that addiction, I was taking 20 Percocet and 10 morphine a day. Oh my um, gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. And I'd gotten really good at, at hiding it. Um, I was taking um, 10 Percocet and five morphine in one go, just in one gulp. I've been able to just swallow that many pills. I'd been swallowing pills for so long now that it wasn't even a big deal to me anymore. And um, I do that in the, you know, sometime mid morning and I would do it in the afternoon. And I would just all day I'd ride, ride this, this up and down kind of high of not feeling any pain in my body, but I also really wasn't there in my mind. Um, and, but the thing is, is they were giving me, you know, only so many, it was a prescription. And so I would, it got to the point where the first two weeks after the prescription, I would use all the pills and then I would go through terrible withdrawals for two weeks. And then it would be two weeks of feeling the way that I thought I wanted to feel. And then two weeks of withdrawals. And this went on for like two years of just this up, down, just me being like a really nasty person and just unhappy and in pain. And then me just being completely checked out. And, and that was really hard because my kids were, I actually had kids then they were very small. Um, and I don't remember them being little much. And, uh, I remember some stuff, you know, I remember some memories, um, especially of my oldest, because that, that was before a lot of this started. Um, but you know, that's something I can't get back. I can't get back the memories of when my babies were little, you know, and, and, um, that's hard to think about. Uh, but it also keeps me moving forward, knowing that that's a place I, I don't ever want to go to again. I don't want to go to a place where portions of my life are just blanked out of my memory, just gone. Like, I just don't remember anything. And I, I remember I, I had to go to um, treatment for that because finally I just, it was getting so bad that I just knew I had to do something. I knew that, that something bad was going to happen with all the medications I was taking because I would take them and then I would go to sleep and I would wake up all of a sudden and in, 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 in fear that I was going to die because oh I was God. laying down after taking 10 Percocet and five morphine. So I called the doctor and I just literally said to her, I said, I'm abusing the medications you've prescribed me. Um, I've been doing it for a while. 
you need to stop giving them to me and I need help. And so they instantly put me through to treatment and they did something that was really hard. They cut me off cold Turkey off of opioids and going off of Percocet was bad, but stopping morphine abruptly was one of the most painful experiences I've ever gone through. Um, Like full body kind of pain, full body aches. It felt like I got ran over by a train. It is the worst headache I've ever had ever for like two, three days straight of just feeling like, like I was going to die. Um, my ex-husband, my husband at the time, um, said he would just check on me to make sure I was still breathing when I was going through withdrawals. And of course this was obviously traumatic for him as well. And I remember after I went through treatment and I came out the other side, he told me he was so happy because it was like, I was back. Like I'd been gone for two years, even though I was there because he said we'd watch movies. I don't remember this, of course, Mm -hmm. but I, I believe him completely that we would watch movies that were funny that normally I would like, and I would just watch and he'd laugh. And I'd just be like, looking like, huh? Like I wouldn't have a much of a reaction because I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And it, it got so bad that, you know, I was taking all these psych meds. I was taking Percocet. I was taking morphine. In addition to that, I was taking Neurontin, which is a nerve pain blocker. Um, I was taking, uh, let's see, I was taking, um, also, I was taking Flexerol, which is a muscle relaxer. So what do you think about Flexerol as a muscle relaxer? Because as someone who, uh, who like, because I think about people who have like a high blood pressure, like hypertension, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that they get like prescribed muscle relaxers fascinates me because, um, like you breathe, like there's like there's breathing practices. There's a variety. Breathing practice is a very easy way to be able to calm yourself down and to, and to mm-hmm. be able to achieve relaxation, and I was surprised that like a common thing that people would get prescribed for when they have hypertension and high blood pressure and very stressful is flexorol. Is flexorol. And I was like, okay. I do, I, I do breathing practices all the time. It only takes like five minutes, you know, to do. Um, and that can shift me from being like, like super tense to relaxed. I know? think that the reason that they're prescribed flexorol is because what it does is it, because it's a muscle relaxer, it, it, I don't exactly know, but I'm mm-hmm. guessing that it relaxes the smooth muscles in the veins and allows mm. the blood pressure to go down if they're actually having blood pressure issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I think there is something to, you know, being able to do meditation and relaxation, but I mm-hmm. also acknowledge that it doesn't always take care of high blood pressure issues because sometimes there's other things going on. Sometimes there's um, a problem with like the left side of the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the person is um they have poor circulation and high blood pressure because they've put on a lot of extra weight and now they have type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. and they are are their body is constantly in this state of of being inflamed and um trying to to remedy that with just meditation i don't know if that would work necessarily now, i never heard of anybody being prescribed flexural but um for that problem but but i i believe you i mean i'm yeah. certain that's well, no, probably I, true but. i was what i was curious because the people i've only met people who've been prescribed muscle relaxers as a form of like hypertension and high blood pressure from like um like the people that that i'm thinking of are usually in like high stress positions and things like that but no diabetes or anything like that and and that's where i was like for that anyways for things that were relationship to right. like, like, tension i was just fascinated because i 
thought, well, you could do that with your body in certain different kinds of ways, even beyond you could. breathing yeah. with, with little practice or even the way that like that even gets to the heart of the problem, too, with like, well, how does someone engage with stress and how do they take manage stress in their life? Like, are they catastrophizing everything um, or are they able to find coping mechanisms to, to calm down? You know, yeah. And the, I mean, in the, in the, in the instance where really the only problem it seems is they're having a very high stress life. Mm-hmm. I think that, that they would need to, to look at what else they're doing. Are they yeah. consuming a lot of caffeine? Are they a smoker? Um, both of those things will come, will add to stress levels as far as that goes and also will increase, um, can contribute to to stress anxiety, which can also contribute to high blood pressure. So mm-hmm. sometimes people with, with high, with a lot of anxiety will have an elevated blood pressure. That's why there's this phrase called white coat syndrome. So if you come into a doctor and you get your blood pressure taken, sometimes it's higher than it would normally be because you're nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's definitely a, a psychosomatic, um, yeah. psychosomatic element to blood pressure. And, and, and I acknowledge that fully. So I think that definitely medication or medication, meditation can be uh, very helpful of that, especially if there's not a lot of other health conditions going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, and other medications I've seen, I've seen people prescribed for are uh, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, which all work within the, within the lungs and the heart to lower blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, in different ways and they all have different side effects. So, um, but yeah, flexural is a, is a pretty strong muscle relaxer. So, uh, but, but for me, I would take a lot of them. I take like four at once. I used you know, to take okay. them when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's like when I was a kid, I'd take them, uh, I'd take them after school and stuff like that. And it was you like, just sleep so, or relax or what would you do? I would basically end up sleeping. I'd get, I'd smoke a lot of weed and then take muscle relaxers. And then I got to this point where I'm like, okay, these kinds of experiences are getting me less in touch with living in my life. And I'm getting more close to dying. Like, and that's not even like to impose on anyone at all. It's just like, if you're watching a movie, like whatever distracts you from being able to watch this really cool movie kind of sucks. You know what I mean? And at the time of my life, I didn't feel that, but Mm -hmm. looking back on it, it was just like, because they're not pleasurable even you know they're just like just completely put you out yeah definitely it's it's um it's real easy to overtake that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and so uh you know after i went through the recovery process from all those opioids i was taking uh they wouldn't prescribe me any anymore you know so if i had problems i would get a drug called tramadol which is uh, technically it's a narcotic derivative, but it can be classed as a narcotic at times, but they'll prescribe it if you're having a lot of pain and they don't want you to take narcotics, but it can still be strong. And if you take as many as I took, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. So um, I would take probably four to six at a time just mm-hmm. to take them so I could feel something. And this was years later. This is when I'm talking about the tramadol. This is, you know, after I got divorced, after after I had the, the opioid addiction, um, I wasn't, I wasn't prescribed any other things, but I was prescribed some things, you know? So I just, I, I had built up this image in my mind that because I was so big and heavy and overweight that my body could just take 
as many pills as it wanted because, you know, it's, it has to go by body weight and I weigh more than everybody else. So surely I can take more because it takes a lot for my body to feel any effect of anything. Mm-hmm. And this was this false narrative. I told myself for years that, that I was some sort of invincible person that could just keep piling medications into myself and never have any sort of adverse effect. And, um, that definitely wasn't the case, but I, I had convinced myself it was, and I believed it for a long time. And, uh, that was, that was, you know, hard to, to, to come to terms with the fact that I had been kind of living a lie, you know, that I, that because I was this size and I had been taken, given so many medications over the years that, that I didn't really have to not take anything. I could take whatever I wanted and as many as I wanted. And it wasn't going to matter because the recommendation recommendations on the bottle were for like a 150 pound woman. And here I am at almost two or 400. So I'll extrapolate that and, you know, multiply it by three or whatever, do the math. And I could take that many, you know, and it was all, it was all very scientific in my head at the Mm -hmm. time, you know, it made sense. It all made sense to me. And if it didn't, then I would twist the truth until it did. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was that was a, a big deal. Just, you know, going through all those medications and. And uh, muscle relaxers and opioids and all that stuff. What which what kind of event in your life or momentum had inspired you to, to change or to look elsewhere to solve your problems? Um, well, I. You know, after I got divorced, I, um, I become like a really nasty person. I had, I had, uh, just angry, unhappy, just didn't have a lot of kind words for my ex-husband. It was just, we just kind of lived together, raised our kids. It wasn't any, we weren't even barely friends. I mean, kind of, but it was, it was me acting entitled and, and, uh, selfish most of the time and, and him putting up with it. and. Uh, I just got more and more, you know, down the rabbit hole of, of just addiction. I started, I started uh, drinking a lot of wine and then it would be like two bottles every night. Right. I'd have to have all to myself. He didn't even drink. I'd just sit there drinking while he watched TV and check out or whatever, you know, and, um, or I'd start, you know, smoking a lot of marijuana while drinking a lot of wine because I I got, you know, I'm a big person. So I got to put in as much as I can as the lie I told myself. Mm -hmm. And so um, just checking out for my own life all the time over and over and over again. And, you know, finally to the point where it was just, it was just obvious that the relationship had deteriorated and I had put in so little effort that it, there was no saving it really, you know, and I was unhappy with myself. I was unhappy with the relationship. I was, um, you know, I was unha- unhappy with him for some reason because he didn't save me or something. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. what I expected people to do, but apparently it was more than they were already doing, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is not appropriate response, but that's what I thought. And that's what I did. And I'm just going to be honest about that. Yeah. So um, I moved out and I, I started dating. I didn't dated anybody ever really. You know, I met my ex-husband when I was 18. This this point now I'm 35 when I move out. Wow. And suddenly there's internet dating, right? There's, <laughs> there's, there's a match.com and Tinder and all these plenty of fish and all these crazy websites where there's just people just waiting to meet you. You know, how great can it be to just go on a date? With anybody ever, anybody you ever want to see, they look good in that picture. They're probably great in person. Right. 
Because <laughs> that was what I told myself over and over again, over and over again. Every time I went on a date, this is this is a great guy. This and there never was. You know, sometimes there was an okay guy, but it didn't matter because I didn't pay attention. Because I I, I went so far down into addiction and drinking and drug use that. I didn't even care about who I was dating anymore. It was, were they going to get me drinks? Were they going to provide me with some sort of substance? And, uh, you know, was I all going to get it all for free? Mm-hmm. And it, it, and it just makes, it makes me sound terrible and it should, cause I was terrible. Um, but it, it was how I was living. You know, it didn't even dating became more about what I could get, what kind of drug I could get, what kind of, alcohol I could get, how much. Um, and I literally did everything I could do to get all of it. I, anything you can do to get drugs or alcohol free, I did it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's when, you know, your life's really dark when you're willing to basically sell yourself for drugs and alcohol, you know, something's wrong. Something's gone wrong somewhere that, that you feel like you have to go to those kind of depths to, to get, something to make you feel like you're not doing what you're doing at the moment. So it, it got really hard, you know, it it got, it it got to the point where I was, I was just trying to get, you know, like I said, as, as much drugs and alcohol as I could, could get. And uh, I, I met some nice people along the way. And unfortunately they were, they were victims of circumstance. You know, I never saw those people again. And, and, um, you know, ruined any chance I had with anybody because it didn't, it was all about me. And um, it was always all about me. And that was my problem. That was my problem from, from my marriage too. It was always all about me. And, um, and it's hard to, to look at yourself in the mirror and realize that you've been so narcissistic for so long. You didn't, I didn't even know it half the time. Like sometimes I knew I was selfish, but a lot of times I was just reacting, acting the way I thought I was supposed to just whatever felt good to me, you know? Yeah. It was all about feelings. And um, I do think feelings are important, uh, but I think they're secondary to logic. Hmm. And uh, I, I think that a lot of problems happen because people get their feelings involved because, or they get butthurt or something because they feel this way or someone should feel this way. Or, and, and I have gone down the path of feeling a certain way or feeling justified or feeling this or happy or sad. And I've made, you know, poor decisions in my life based on my feelings. And there was no logic involved at all. It was just how I felt and how I could feel better. And a, a lot of the addictions I went through were to try to get rid of feelings. None of it had to do with logic, because if it did, I wouldn't be doing it. It's not logical to drink a half a gallon of vodka a day. But that's what I did. It took me one or two days to take drink a half a gallon of vodka, which I can't believe that, but that's how much I was drinking. And it, it, it was just, you know, it'd become it's like a lifestyle, like who I was, I identified as, it, you know, and um, it's, it's hard to, to put into words how, how low you feel when you know that, that if you don't drink in the morning, you're not going to be able to make it through the workday. And uh, that's did where you, I was. Did you f- introspect about that, that need or that, that you had to like, you know, how you're going to feel if you didn't drink? Um, I tried you- not to think about how I was going to feel if I didn't drink. Cause all I saw was, 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 was bad outcomes. I saw myself, 
I didn't see the positives of not drinking. I was so like entrenched in, in the addiction, so consumed by it that really my main focus was, was where could I get my next drink or my next high? It, it, how how painful was it to look at your situation then? Like how painful was it Um, to, to, to look at where you've gotten yourself? It was, it was really painful. You know, I, I, I ended up um, getting sent home from a job I had early because I was making so many account errors. I was, I was working with money. No, that's not really good when you're drinking all the time, but I was like an accounts, accounts payable person for a company I was working for. And I was making all sorts of errors on accounts and customers were calling upset and, and clients and, and companies that we worked with were upset. And they said, you know, you've got to figure something out. So we're going to send you home today. But if this keeps happening, you're going to, we're going to have to let you go. And I just, I'd already been fired from, I think, two other jobs for uh, drinking and, and just falling asleep at work and getting the shakes at work and stuff from, from not drinking enough and from not being able to drink while at work. You know, that's, it's a real complaint your, your boss cares about. Sorry, I can't drink while I'm here. Can I still work here? Like, no. So um, I, you know, I, I got sent home and I was in a real big, like, you know, throwing a pity party for myself. And I just drank for hours and I got in my car and I drove to a friend's house because I thought I didn't even think I just did it. It didn't even cross my mind that it wasn't a good idea. Nothing, nothing, no thoughts happened. And that's the scariest part to me is that I didn't stop for a moment and think, wow, I could really hurt somebody or I could really hurt my future. It's really set a bad example for anybody that looks up to me like my kids or anything. None of that. Nothing crossed my mind. I just did it. I just did. I didn't think. And, um, you know, I had, I, I ended up going to jail for two days. Um, you know, I got arrested and released, but then I had to serve two days in jail, um, 48 hours. And, uh, it, the 48 hours was hard. And that sounds ridiculous. I'm sure to people that have spent months and years behind bars. Um, but the 48 hours felt like a long, long time. And I had this fear in my head that they were really never going to let me out. That I was just in there. They just said 48 hours, but really, because when you go into jail, you know, you have to, it's, it just feels very like um, dehumanizing almost. Cause you have to like show them your complete naked body and you have to bend over and they have to inspect everything. And then you have to get into their clothes. And then you just kind of, you're, you're into this, you're, you're this, this inmate now. And, and it was all finally hitting me like finally hitting me that I was, I had become this like mess of a person, you know? And, um, and, and, and even after the jail, I still drank, you know, I, I didn't have a car anymore cause I totaled it in the wreck. Uh, but I, you know, I, it was really hard. It was hard to, to face what I had become. I, now I was a person that was unemployed. I didn't have any transportation. Uh, my children were, had not been taken away from me yet, but they were threatening you know, I, it still didn't stop me. You know, I, Whoa. I, just, I was still drinking. Yeah. I was just train wrecking, just, just down and all the way down into a hole, you know, just, just, uh, I, I, how far, could, how low could I go? You know, was it like no introspect, was it no introspection? Just like, whatever, this is what I'm doing. Or were you yeah, having like a little bit of thoughts? It was up? at that time, it was still a lot of the victimhood. Like it was like, 
it's not fair that I got a DUI, you know, and it, over an hour after the accident, my blood alcohol level was still 0.254, which is over three times the legal limit in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, I totaled my car. None of these were signs that maybe I messed up. You know, I, I knew I had messed up, but, but it, was, it wasn't as bad as everybody said it was, right? I kept telling, lying to myself. And so um, I, I was a victim. Like, it, you know, I, I, I didn't hurt anybody in the accident and I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I'm just saying I, these are lies I would tell myself. You know, it, was, it wasn't as bad as they said. And um, it's not fair that Washington's so hard on people when they get a DUI. And because I'd gotten five years probation, a year of treatment, and I had to have an interlock device on my car for a year, which is where you blow into a thing. And that was the first time I'd ever been arrested for anything um, at all. But, uh, you know, in hindsight, which is often 2020, in my opinion, but in hindsight, I'm glad that I was forced to do all that. I'm glad I was forced to go to treatment for that long. And I was forced to have the interlock, interlock device, which was so annoying. But, you know, every time I, I blew into it, I had to think, like, God, why, you know, why did I, why did I make this choice? Every time I blew into that thing and start my car and I had to wait for it to give me the readout, whether I could start the car or not. Every time I had to sit there for three seconds, not knowing what was going to happen and being like, you know, this is your fault. Like you didn't know whether this is going to pass or not. You know, you don't know whether you're going to be able to start your car. And this is because, you know, you're living life like, like it doesn't matter. You know, you're living life like you're going to live forever. And that like, like I was entitled to just do whatever I wanted all the time. And it, there was no consequences for anybody else and, or for myself. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I really until, uh, I met Paul and I started talking with him, you know, I went on one more internet date, I decided, uh, and, and everybody else wanted to meet at night, bars and stuff. And, and he, he wanted to meet at 2, 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. at a park and then have some tea. And I thought, well, this is going to be a real weird guy. Like <laughs> Everybody else wants to go for a drink or dinner. And then who knows what happens after that. But this guy wants to meet in broad daylight. There's clearly something wrong with him. <laughs> but what else am I doing? Because now I don't have a job. And um, I just got a real crappy car with an interlock device and then I got nothing else to do. So at first I was just meeting them for something to do. As terrible as it sounds, I was like, I got nothing to do on Tuesday or whatever day it was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we met and we had tea, we went on a walk and, and uh, I, 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 you know, at the time I, I didn't mention, I was smoking two to three packs a day of cigarettes, um, constantly chain smoking, just constantly. Um, smoking as much cigarettes and as much marijuana as I could tolerate at the time constantly. Um, and when I met him, I didn't have a cigarette the entire date. And we, it was a long one because we went to the park and we went on a big long walk. We were together for like four hours or something. And I didn't have one the whole time because I didn't want him to know. Before I didn't even care when I met people. It was like, they would just smoke with me or drink with me. They didn't care. And so, you know, later I was like, I, have, I need a cigarette. And he's like, you smoke? And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, I like hung my head. I was like, why do you do that to yourself? You know, and, and, and no one ever questioned my habits because I certainly wasn't going to. And um, everyone else was just, you know, you know, good time, good time guy. Just whatever I want to do, they'll do, you know, whatever. Oh, no. And so, uh, 
you're like, well, that's, that's really, really bad for you. Super expensive. Like it's all bad all, all the time. <clears throat> and, um, uh, but I was like, well, no, this is, you know, this is who I am. I, I'm a smoker. So, you know, you take me or leave me, whatever you want, but this is, this is what I do. So, you know, and, and, you know, I saw him again and, and I had, I had some cigarettes right before I saw him again. And he's like, you're still doing it. And I'd be like, well, am I just going to quit for you? <laughs> Who do you think you are? You know? And, uh, you know, and, and I did quit. I did quit shortly after that. And, um, you know, my children hated it. They were always commenting cigarettes. They stink. And, you know, you smell like cigarettes, your breath's gross or, cause I wouldn't smoke with them in the car, but when they weren't there, I would smoke in the car all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So the car stunk. Um, I stunk, everything stunk, right. For like cigarettes. And it was super expensive and it was just, it was terrible. And so I, I quit that and, and it, it felt good to, to quit. So and um, that was a powerful kind of experience to quit from it. You didn't like flirt with quitting or anything like that, or no, I made a real quick, clean break with cigarettes. Um, it, it, there might've been a, a couple of days where I, I had a few of them. Um, but for the most part, it was a real clean break. And, and I realized that um, I'm sure there was nicotine addiction going on, but that wasn't the hardest for me to what I think was happening is I, I was so unsettled in my mind all the time. I was always looking outside of myself for things to make me feel better or things to distract me um, just from the anxiety and, and the failures I felt and um, constantly smoking gave me something to do with my hands. Like I, like when I was driving, I wanted to smoke. When I was on the phone, I wanted to smoke. Even when I was eating, I wanted to smoke. I wanted to always be doing something because sitting with what was in my mind, the memories I had, knowing all the terrible things I'd done was just too hard. It was too hard to sit with myself. And that was one of the reasons why, um, in addition to getting drugs and alcohol, one of the reasons I was always dating is because I didn't have to focus on me. I didn't have to think about me. I didn't have to be alone with me. Like I, I, you know, I, I disliked myself so much that I, I made every effort I could to get away from myself, mm-hmm. which I don't really know if that to, to this day, I don't even know if that's possible to get away from yourself. I think you just end up muting your feelings and, and uh, you know, causing harm to yourself and those around you. But people try time, to seemed, for their whole lifetimes and just still, yeah, just <laughs> constantly trying to get away from myself and, you know, sitting alone by myself reading a book or, or watching TV or or going on a walk felt like torture to me, just felt horrible to sit with myself. Like I didn't want to have any thoughts. I didn't want to feel anything. I just wanted, I don't know what I wanted, but it wasn't being alone with myself. It was always being distracted by someone or something. And once I identified that I had a problem with being alone with myself, and constantly needing to distract me, me from my own pain and my own thoughts and lack of motivation. It was, it made it easier to identify what else was I was using to distract myself. Um, so after the accident, I had, after the, the, I totaled the car and I got rest for the DUI, I had to go into treatment and I went to um, a place called uh, NARA, which is native American rehabilitation program. And I'm not native American. Um, but they offer it to anyone that 
you know, meets their qualifications for income and stuff. And, and I went there and, uh, um, it was a really good experience for me. Um, I, um, one of the toughest things I had to do was I had to call every day and see if it was my random day to take a UA. Oh, wow. Every weekday I had to call for nine months straight and see if it was my day. Um, because, you know, you can get called, you can have to go two days in a row. Sometimes you have to go, you know, twice a week, depending on your level of addiction when you enter mm -hmm. determines how often you have to go in. Did that make you feel anxious when you had to call in and anticipate maybe taking a UA or uh, was um, it just an inconvenience? It was, it was at the beginning, it was still more of that, like, oh, this isn't fair. Like what? Like it was at first I didn't, I, I wasn't coming to terms with the fact that like I was here because of me, like I was mm -hmm. here because I fucked up or I messed up. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're I, fine. I, I, I had allowed myself to become such a train wreck of a person in mind and body and soul all, all together that, that now I have to call the phone number every day to see if everything's an animal. Right. So I was an otter. So I had to see if otter came up that day. And if I did, then I had to go in and pee in a cup and they have to watch you pee. Mm -hmm. I can't pee in my own, come out and put it in a cup. They have to, some woman actually watches you pee every time. Oh my. And so that's another level of feeling like, like just icky about it, you know? And, mm -hmm. and finally I, I got to the point where I, I don't want to feel icky about this. I just don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to be this person that's always running from every problem and trying to mute all my feelings and blame everybody else for everything. Cause it was not working. None of it was working, you know, blaming everybody for everything. And, and, um, and, and pretending like everything was everybody else's fault and, and never having compassion for others when they were struggling, but expecting everyone to have compassion for me. And it, it, it really opened my eyes to, to the level of, you know, disarray I'd let my life fall into. And so you know, going, going to the treatment for nine months was, was a lot. Um, it was supposed to be a year, but they let me out at nine months. Cause I, I did really well. Wow. Um, and I, I got a job, uh, I got a job at a grocery store and, um, I was a housekeeper. And at first I thought, I don't want to be a housekeeper who wants to be a housekeeper. You know, that was a thought I had some sort of character attack on all housekeepers right there. <laughs> and so I thought, um, I started the job and I realized really quick, it was the best job in the whole place. It, because I got to walk around to every department. I walked so much. I got 20,000 steps a day. Wow. I dropped like 20 pounds my first month working there. Um, and sure. I had to clean up some crap and nasty stuff sometimes, but I didn't have to, everybody was always happy to see me because I was the one cleaning Aww. up the mess and people were super friendly. And, and I, you know, I, I think the people at the cash register had a worse job than me. They're taking all the gruff from, from, from customers who are getting upset and I'm just walking around sweeping, you know, and, and I get to see everybody in all the departments and make friends with people. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm finally starting to like do something that's, that's productive. You know, I'm, maybe I'm just cleaning a store, but, but it was a huge step because I didn't have a job mm -hmm. and um, you know, making these, these small changes in my life was was what helped me, you know, become who I am today and who I'm still trying to become. And so that's the part I know that we had talked before that um, it was, it's part of the process, you know, like I want to get to a, 
a certain point, but I have to practice being that person first. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't just wake up. You don't just wake up knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. You don't just wake up finding the answers and suddenly, you know, just suddenly you're enlightened. And, (laughs) you know, usually people have a trial by fire or, or if they're real smart, they see other people having a problem and they learn from it. Mm -hmm. But you know, that wasn't me. I had to go through it all myself. I'm not, not that smart, I guess. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that part of the process was this daily practice of, of keeping my house in order, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, literally and figuratively, you know, I, I, I was a terrible housekeeper at my house before, before mm-hmm. I ever got this job or met Paul or anything. It was all just, just clothes everywhere. Garbage just looked like a hoarder house, just terrible, just drinking and, you know, everything that you could think of that would be in a, in a house that was in disarray. It was like that. And my mind was the same way. Mm-hmm. I had all these cognitive distortions where where I, I knew what other people were thinking about me. And then I would treat them like I knew it. You know, when you, when you feel like, you know, that, that someone has some judgment on you. So you judge them first because God, God forbid they judge you. Yeah. And so I had developed all these poor habits and, and, and those were the hardest to break. And they still are just the, the ego, you know, coming back in all the time. And, uh, that's a, that's a challenge I still have, you know, uh, realizing that that other people have other points of view and um and my experience isn't everybody's experience now i do have a lot of experience in certain areas and uh hopefully that helps people but sometimes it doesn't or it won't and um i have to have space in my mind and in my life to accept that other people are going to disagree with me mm-hmm. and still be able to find love for them in that And, um, that's where compassion comes in. And, uh, before there was entitlement and now I'm replacing it with compassion Mm -hmm. because before I was entitled to feel this way, I was entitled to take these drugs. I was entitled to, to be, to be, um, you know, terrible to, to people I know and, you know, entitled to train wreck my life because it was my life and, and I can do what I want. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's just not the way life is. No one lives in a vacuum. Um, regardless of what you do, there's a ripple effect, you know, to your kids, to your family, to your coworkers, to people who look up to you, to people who are expecting something of you, anything. There's always a ripple effect in the life with the choices that you make. And, you know, I wasn't recognizing that. I was just a horse with blinders on, running down a lane and appalled that things weren't working out for me when I was making no effort. And uh, that's not logical or practical. And uh, so, so I think finding compassion for others and, and even finding compassion for myself, understanding that I, you know, I, I struggled a lot and, and I just, just having compassion for the person that was so wrecked and understanding that even though I don't want to be that person, that's who I was. And I have to try to learn from it. You have to be able that, to look at it to learn from it too. Right. You have to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and be, and be alone with yourself. And I wasn't able to do that. Like I said, it, that was hard. That was the hardest thing, you know, like in, um, like in that movie, uh, was it never ending story? And hmm. uh, remember there was like, there's like the two things he has to go through. And the one is where he runs through and those, those sphinxes shoot the lasers at him. But that's yeah. not even the scariest one. They say the scariest one is when you're going up to the frozen mirror and you have to look at yourself. And I never understood that as a kid. I never, I was like, 
who can't look in a mirror? Like, this is the stupidest part of the movie. And now it all makes sense to me. Like, the hardest part was being able to look at myself and realize that I was where I was. A lot of it was because of the poor choices I made and, and, and the lack of self-reflection I had practiced in my own life. And, um, <clears throat> you know, as time went on, I, 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 I stopped drinking, of course, before I went into treatment. I never failed a UA, um, which is good in the yeah, whole nine months. Awesome. Cause once you, in the program I was in for people that needed a lot of help, if you failed one, you had to start the whole program over again every time. Wow. So I was like, I am not, I'm not doing this again, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and when I entered treatment, I was cer- I wasn't going to talk to anybody. I wasn't going to be anybody's friend. I was there to do, you know, quote my time and get out, right. And move on with my life. Cause God forbid I have to talk to any of these quote freaks again. Right. That's what, that's what I had told myself when I came in and I had that poor attitude. And by the time I left, I had made a bunch of friends and I, 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 I loved being there and I didn't feel like I was around like derelicts or, mm-hmm. or people with problems. I felt like I was around. I had compassion for the other people. I had love for them. I understood that they had struggled just like I had and that there was this common thread that, 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 that tied us all together, that we had all experienced this, this lack of being able to cope with our traumas and, and, our, and our, our problems with our ego. And, and for, for however it led us there, we were all there at the same time in this together. Wow. And just having that feeling of community was huge to, to, to make me feel like I was being productive in my life and that I was making steps in the right direction. Um, and then I, um, with, <clears throat> with Paul, we, we moved in together and um, he started helping me make these YouTube videos. And so I, you know, I made a, a, several of those and put those out and uh, he did all the editing. Took him, oh, took him a long so time. Cool. He would sit there for hours editing, you know, and now I, I finally know how to edit videos. Thank goodness. And his yeah. back doesn't have to hurt for sitting there for hours, been over trying to <laughs> micro edit everything. He did a really good job and it took so long. I would feel bad for him just sitting there like, you know, back and forth, back and forth, trying to get the exact moment to, to yep. fade in and fade out and, and all the, you know, bring, bring this word into the screen and take this one out. And I'm just, I have a whole new respect for people that edit video and movies. I'm like, Oh my goodness. That's what people that don't understand. Even with movies, it's so much fun to tell my son, like, Oh, you know, these scenes, these scenes have been shot so many different times, you know? And like, and this scene is like a, only a small portion of probably a bigger one that was shot. And like, you look at people who are like skateboarders and have content or like uh, hip hop artists. Right. And you'll hear from them all the time that they're editing and thinking about their content or, kinds of song they're writing more than they're actually playing or more than they're actually skating and that like the reality behind the kind of work that goes into those things is is different than what it seems like you know from when you're listening to the music or seeing someone skate or yeah it's a completely different experience it's or like being at a tv show like at a studio mm-hmm. when you're there watching it it's not nearly as fun as watching it on your tv yeah um, because it, it just seems like, oh, this is not as glamorous. There's like this camera guy and there's this whole side that's like nothing. It's like a warehouse, but there's people over here. But on TV, it looks like it's this whole like crisply edited, perfect stage. And mm-hmm. but in real life, you're like, oh, and that's the way life is too. Yeah. Like people will show, they'll just project this 
perfect little image, but you know, there's this whole like empty warehouse on the side mm-hmm. with all their problems just waiting in there. And so uh, that's where I think the compassion comes in again, too, is that, you know, everybody's got some sort of thing they're dealing with. Everybody's got the most put together person still has something they don't talk about much or, or something that they're struggling with. And but- and that's what's helped me so much because it's so easy to other people. Like, you know, you see an author or someone skydiving or whatever, and you're just like, oh, skydivers, not afraid of heights. Oh, the author's just really lucky and they have a trust fund. And it's like, it's not like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to dismiss things or, or people and their accomplishments or failures or whatever it is for what you think is going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that, making a lot of assumptions and um and it seems like a lot with in my life when i would assume a lot of things i would also judge a lot mm. so i think those go hand in hand when you make assumptions you're often judging um, but, before you know all the facts but what what's an assumption and what's a judgment in some ways uh, isn't an assumption and a judgment your your thinking mind you know like you're going into delusion. You're not seeing and paying attention to what is right. You're thinking right. about what you think of it. You're thinking in the, the delusion, essentially. Right. Like I might see, um, I mean, I don't do this, but let's just say for argument's sake, I see a woman carrying around like a really expensive purse. Mm-hmm. And so I assume wow, she's got lots of money. And then I, you know, I judge her like, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, she's one of those rich people that doesn't care about anybody. But in reality, she she could either be a rich person that does care about people, or maybe she got that purse as a gift. And here I am treating her like she's going to look down on me because I'm so afraid of being judged myself. And a lot of I think that comes from insecurity. And and that's like changes the whole um, direction of the experience because when you interact with them, you might have a certain posture. Right. And that might change how they treat you and and vice versa. Um, And in addition to that, like you only have so many moments, whether it's just that swift interaction with the lady in the purse or just life in general, if that's your neighbor, you have only so many moments to to think and to act and to speak. And you have to decide what are you going to pay attention to? And like with that, you can think like um, I'm going to make assumptions and then I'm going to judge that person or. I'm going to find out how, what kind of questions I could ask them. I'm going to find out, you know, how to maneuver the conversation. Like you only have like a minute, which one are you going to do? Yeah. And that's a good point. Cause I think a lot of times when I interact with people now, I've started asking myself is, is what I'm going to say or do going to be either productive or contribute positively in some way. And, um, you know, if the answer is no, I try not to say anything mm-hmm. because if I can't lift anybody up with what I'm saying or add something that I think could improve their life, then um, it's, it's really not a, not a good idea to say something because other then then I have to ask myself, why do I want to say something? And oftentimes it comes back to my ego. Like, you know, I might know the answer to something. And I might want to show somebody that I know, right? But if I call them out and make it clear that they don't know, then that's not going to lift them up or make them feel better. And it's and all it's providing is some sort of hollow victory for myself and stroking my ego. 
Whereas if I just go along with what they're saying and, uh, you know, be educated by what they're saying, regardless of whether I know the answer or not, then they get to say their piece. I don't have to come off like a jerk, you know, cutting them off to, to prove that I know that I know more. And, um, and it's just checking my ego a lot is, is really helped me over the years and, you know, and, and things, things that have happened where I've gotten kind of a funny example, like things on, on like Facebook or something where uh, I'll make some prediction about something that's going to happen and I'll be right, but it'll be something that like was bad, like a war or, or some sort of increase in poverty or something. And it'll show me on my memories, right. That, that, that I've posted this, you know, and, and, it, and I remember saying like, if this happens, I'm definitely going to repost it because everybody has to know that I was right. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I asked myself, but why, why do they have to know that I knew like, who does that benefit that 500 people, random people on my friends list now know that I called it, is that going to improve their life? All it's going to do is really, it's really going to make me look like kind of a nasty person who's very self-serving and, and I don't want to be that person anymore. So I have to check my motivation a lot too. Like, why am I trying to participate right now? Mm-hmm. If I can't add to anything that, and I don't, I definitely don't want to take away, then I'm going to keep my mouth shut. You, you have such a, a beautiful knack for being able to like separate your identity from your thoughts in a lot of ways. Cause like, that's something that, you know, I would go, I think is really important in my own life where whatever I, I, I think, or I feel I have to ask myself, is that appropriate within my values and within the reality around me and the context that I'm in, right? Like it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's inherent to me that, I would be a very dangerous person if I didn't do that. Like if I, if I didn't question the thoughts that I had and question the desires or any of those kinds of things, if I just were like, this is what I feel and this is what I think rather, I always have to take my thoughts and consider them and, you know, not for even really bad things, but even for really simple things, you know, like my motivations and what kind of food I want to eat or my diets. Cause like, here's a very easy one is it's really good idea to be mindful of your eating uh, maybe try to count calories some like one time in your life to be aware of what's going on, change different dietary things, you know, try different dietary restrictions, but also there's people out there who have eating disorders and there's people out there who get into that and have an eating disorder on the other end of it and have to deal with fixating and obsessing on those things. But does that mean you shouldn't try those things and try to think about your eating? In my experience, it's No. You know, and sometimes I find myself like straying from the path and being really dysfunctional with this, um, this attempt at doing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, well, it's a practice. I think it's, it's not, it's not a, you know, necessarily in the end is, did I do good or did I not do good? It's, did I do, did I practice daily to get better? You know, I don't know if, if success and perfection is the goal. I think improving who you are um, so that you can be a better benefit to yourself, your family and the world is, is really the goal mm-hmm. in life. In my opinion is what can you give of yourself to help others? 
in, in whatever capacity you have, you know, if, if you, even if you don't have a lot of influence, what can you influence? Who can you talk to? Who can you lift up? Who can you encourage or what can you do to help yourself? And, you know, when you're not asking yourself those kinds of questions, it's, it can be a very self-serving existence that you don't even realize you have. And, um, you know, maybe that works for some people, but for me, it didn't at all. Um, focusing on my needs and desires for so long without checking whether it was the right choice or the productive choice is, is really what got me sick so, so, so often. And what got me so addicted is that I didn't, I didn't take the time to check whether what I was doing was the proper, logical, productive choice. I just did based on what I felt. And uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, feelings have, have a definite purpose, but feelings are not facts. As much as we want them to be, they're not facts. Like because you feel something doesn't mean it's real. Because you have a thought doesn't mean it's real. It can be, but if you're qualifying everything in the world as to whether it's true or not, based on how you feel, I, I, I think that's a recipe for disappointment. Um, definitely. Do you feel like um, that the situation that you found yourself lies on the backs of culture and society? Um, or do you like not providing the, the teaching resources to like to develop these skills earlier on, or maybe that they, that within culture and society, you um, you're getting like motivated or, or encouraged to go one way to be like more hedonistic, if you will. Uh, or do you feel like that's something that's intrinsic to being a person that there's like this momentum with inside of you that like, craves for more and that more isn't always a good thing i think oh, i hate to be a fence sitter but i think it's both i think um i think that there are cultural things going on where you know living certain lifestyles you know using <clears throat> excess drugs and alcohol and, and and uh dating everyone and anyone are can be acceptable and sometimes people consider it a sign of empowerment you know, um, you know, as a woman, I, I can date whoever I want because I'm a woman and I get to pick and I get to choose. And, you know, there's truth to that. Sure. I can date who I want, but I mean, do I want to just date whoever's out there? Do I want to just train wreck my life because I'm making the choice? And that's again, where my ego comes in, like to make a choice just because I'm making it is completely not the right way to look at it. So if you find yourself choosing something and it may not be a good choice, but you're picking it because gosh, darn it, you picked it. That is a recipe for disaster in and of itself, because you're not looking at the ups and the downs. And then, and part of it is, is, as far as you said, with cultural, um, you know, with the food and, and the, the, the sedentary lifestyle, that kind of thing is in my opinion, very cultural, the way that um, the way that food is presented and framed in our society is, is not helpful to many people. Um, the way that, that people can get 
uh, you know, pushed into, into certain diets or, or, or thinking certain foods are healthy because they see it on TV or, um, the way that, you know, ultra processed foods and, and, um, things that are, are made with ultra processed wheat and things like that are, are subsidized by the government. You know, these companies that, that, that grow this are subsidized, but not the organic ones, not the whole foods, the ultra, the less processed things. It's only the ultra processed things that are cheap to make that are detrimental to our health Mm -hmm. are what is pushed at us and what they're subsidized. You know, if you, if you're on WIC, if you're a mother on WIC, the government will allow you to buy certain things with WIC money, which is women, women, infants, and children so that you can afford food for you and your children, but they do not provide for you to buy organic products. They do not provide for you to buy things that are, I would consider like more whole food. Everything is ultra processed, packaged and not, not in my opinion, uh, based on, on health or science on, on what's good for people. It's, it's what they can get out, how much food they can get into people to, you know, keep them healthy, but it's all, uh, fortified with vitamins because once they process it so much, there's no vitamins left in the food anymore. So I kind of went off there for a minute, but what I mean is I, I think a lot of his culture, when you come to like people's diet, exercise, that kind of thing. Um, I think that the addiction piece is, is it's, it's everywhere. And I think a lot of it comes with this whole mentality of, of entitlement that people have that I know I had and that it was, I, I can use whatever I want when I want, uh, because I'm a free person and I'm an adult and without looking at all the consequences. And, um, it's, 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 it's like this self, um, what's the word? It's like self-propagating. Like you, you believe the lie you tell yourself and then you continue to reinforce it with your behavior. Did you, did you ever have any trouble with your children? They're like, I don't want to go to bed and I want to stay up all night. And you like run circles and trying to get them to go to bed. And Uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes they do that. So have you ever like, like in the morning, if they have to go to school, right. Or they have to be somewhere. It's like hard. They got to be there. You know, and they're, it's a ritual. So they don't question that part. Um, They still have to wake up. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, if you, it's literally true. If you didn't wait, if you didn't go to sleep at all, you'd feel you'd, like delusional a little bit you wouldn't be able to function really well maybe feel like a little drunk or something mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a miserable experience if you get like three hours of sleep pretty miserable experience um a few years or months into that you know i think people adapt and they live their life and probably just have a lower quality of lifestyle but with a kid it's um i was often told like well you can't stay up you got to go to bed and like here's why and it was just explained away from me. And with my son, I've learned as an adult that it really does suck to not get very much sleep. And so I tried to do like little micro experiments with him when he would be like, I want to stay up. And I'd be like, well, we can't because we got to go to school or whatever. And then we'd have a night where we actually go do something. And I'm an old person. 
not really, but I like to be in bed early. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, we get home at 10 o'clock and that's like three or four hours past or three hours past my son's bedtime. And he's tired and he wakes up the next morning and he's like, Oh dad, it's my brain's all foggy. It's like hard to function, things like that. And rather than like lording over him being like, that's why you don't stay up. I just ask him like, well, what do you think made that happen? Like, you know, why do you think you feel that way? Do you think there's any way that you can change that? And we've had this conversation about how sleep, not getting enough sleep will affect your quality of life. And even if you don't care about that, like, even if you're like, I don't care about my health, that's like 20 years down the road. It's like, you like to play video games, right? You like to run outside or skateboard or write. Well, good luck trying to do that right now. Think of how it feels when you're exhausted and trying to do those things. Mm -hmm. Like inherently this, this behavior that I want you to, to do, that's good for you. Like there's this consequences here that are feedback. That's not going to hurt you, um, but it won't be fun. And we can develop like a conversation around that. And you can nationally at large, right? Develop like uh, learning and conversations around that to where like, oh, I don't feel very good. Well, why don't I feel very good? And initiate self-experimentation through exercise, sleep and things like that. And I think it could be very exciting. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, because what you did with your son, <clears throat> he didn't just hear you tell him, he experienced it. So it was like experiential evidence for him. He mm -hmm. saw that, wow, when I don't get much sleep, this is what happens. And, you know, that's a, that's a good point, especially when raising children is, you know, lots of times kids think that they know everything mm -hmm. or they know exactly what you're talking about because you're old and how, how would you know anything? And, um, and they have to be shown, they have to be shown. And in that regard, that's what I was like, very, I guess, very childlike, you know, I had to be shown that that the way I train wrecked my life and the bad habits that I had developed, I had to be shown what they were doing to me before I would actually change them. I had to actually see how bad it had gotten. Now there are people, like I've said before, that will see other people going through it and they'll learn like, Oh, I don't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and then there's a lot of people like me that have to go through it before they see it. And, you know, I think that if, if, especially children were taught that way, like given guidelines, like this is what you need to do. But you know, that if you don't do this, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of what happens when you wake up early. And now the consequences aren't going to be that detrimental to them. You know, if they're not that detrimental, then they get to learn on their own. And I think that that's empowering for them. You know, they, they understand the, the benefit of sleep at that point. Mm -hmm. Just like you understand, like the, even when you eat well, I have to believe that the food that you not, it's not every day maybe for you, but the food that you eat now and your habits now, they must feel good to you. Like the, the practice must be inherently a nice thing to do. You know, like when I eat salad, like I've always been like, oh, salad doesn't taste fun and exciting and like super, pl like salad isn't something that I buy and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to run through the whole bag of salad in a day. Like, <laughs> but like I'll buy, you know, like when I'd had goldfish, I'd be like, gosh, if I eat this whole box, I won't have goldfish for a whole week. But so I'd have to hold myself back. But the I'm still not that way with salad, but I am excited to eat salad and the way that salad makes me feel like the way that eating protein makes me feel. Mm -hmm. It's not that that's more pleasurable than like the foods that I used to love that weren't good for me. But the way that I feel is much more sustaining 
in the long term. Like if I feel good from that steak, I'm like maybe a little placebo effect, but I don't think so. Cause I used to get hypertension at the, toward like an hour or two later, I'm still like, yeah, I'm feeling good. I ate some good food today. Like I'm in this mindset, you know, rather than this other mindset of like just seeking like mouth pleasure. Yeah, definitely. And that, you know, that's, that's something that I, I dealt with a lot too. Eating always had to be fun. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, the hardest thing I ever had to give up of all the substances I've used was diet Pepsi. And I was a hard addict on it. I mean, I would drink probably six, like 16 ounce bottles a day, just constantly had to have them in my fridge all the time. Stop. Whenever there was a sale, I was just buying as many as I could fit in the cart. And um, I had to constantly have this like bubbly, sweet, just mm-hmm. sugary feeling going in, taste feeling going in. And, and, you know, eating had to be fun, you know, like going to fast food was fun. Who wants to cook? Like who wants to work? And, and that's, that's how I looked at it. And um, it took me until I saw the evidence of what, how I felt and how my body, how I felt in my head and my body after I ate, like you said, you know, protein, rich foods, vegetables, you know, cut out a lot of the ultra processed stuff. It wasn't until then that I realized, you know, wow, I, food really does make a difference to me. Cause to me before a calorie was a calorie, mm-hmm. you know, I could eat a steak or I could eat, you know, a Snickers bar and the Snickers bar seems way better than a steak mm-hmm. at that time. Oh, yeah. So I would definitely go for that. But then again, I'd be hungry later. So, you know, a calorie one calorie is equal to one calorie. Like one calorie of steak is equal to one calorie of a Snickers. However, what you get for that calorie is not equal. So you can eat a Snickers or you can eat a steak. If you eat a Snickers, you're probably going to be hungry again in an hour or two. You eat a steak, your body's going to be a lot happier. Your brain's going to feel like you're fueled. You know, you're going to be fuller longer. That protein's going to sustain you. And so it's, 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 it's being able to find the nuance in there between what, you know, I used to think calories and eating was just a math game, right? Like I can eat, if I can eat 1500 calories a day, it doesn't matter what I'm putting in as long as it's 1500 calories, you know? So I'm just going to eat this like Costco muffin and this candy bar and a glass of milk. And maybe I'll have a an apple or something. And that'll be my 1500 calories or whatever. You know, that's an example. I don't even know what that adds up to, but this is just an example. Or, or I can have a lot of vegetables. I could have some steak or I could have some chicken. I could have a bunch of different things and feel a lot better and not feel like I'm just starving all day. Mm-hmm. Because that was what would happen is I would, I would choose all these super processed foods when I was dieting. And I'd say, well, it's still 1500 calories, so it shouldn't matter. My body shouldn't know the difference because it's a number. It's all a numbers game. Duh. Like, that's what I would actually say to myself. Duh. (laughs) And, and, um, now I'm like, duh, it's not just a numbers game. You know, they're not all created equal. So, uh, you know, a box of junior mints isn't going to be as nutritious for you as a steak and a salad. Mm -hmm. Um, As much as you want to believe it is, it's not. But it's like a, it's like a science experiment of your body at that point. You know, like if you, I think about that when people go into like carnivore, like elimination diets, like carnivore diets, and even like a certain, like a vegan diet, potato diet or whatever. It's like, well, if you just like, I don't even know, 
like for me, I know what like macros do to me, but I don't know what like certain foods make me feel one way or another, like sleepy mm-hmm. and stuff. But I know like what's waiting for me if I just start eliminating things and add them slowly one at a time. I could become really familiar with what I feel inside based off of what I put into my body. And that's yeah. so exciting. Cause it's like, it's like a whole new landscape that, that that's awaiting for me to explore and for everyone to explore. Cause the crazy thing is, is it's not, um, it, it, it can't be written down as like a, a hard, hard facts in that what you eat is going to make you feel this way. Right. You know, people take caffeine kind of the same, but like people react differently to bread, to meat. Yeah. It's not a cookie cutter experience. And, you know, I didn't realize that I had any sort of wheat sensitivity until I was living with Paul and he doesn't eat wheat or usually doesn't because it gives him like achy joints and mm-hmm. gets some, some, some strange symptoms. Um, it's not an allergy, but like a sensitivity type thing. And I realized I used to have like on the backs of my arms, like little bumps, like a, like kind of like a, I guess it's like a folliculitis where it's kind of like where all the hairs come out. You have like little bumps and, and just rough patches and I'd have them on the tops of my thighs. And um, I decided to stop eating wheat uh, and just, you know, be in unison with him because it was going to be easier for us if we were all on the gluten-free. So I tried it and it was, you know, at first it was hard, but I, I kept going. And after, after like a week or two, all those bumps were gone. All of them. I don't even have them anymore ever. And, um, I stopped eating dairy and I do eat dairy sometimes, uh, cause I, I just love cheese, but, um, <laughs> but I try not to eat too much. And I realize that I'm really sensitive to milk and ice cream. Like I get really nauseated if I eat uh, milk and ice cream and I just get like a sick feeling in my stomach and I get acne on my face a lot if I eat milk products. And so I, if I don't want acne and I don't want bumps on my arms and I don't want to feel nauseous, I try to not eat ice cream or milk mm-hmm. or wheat. Um, and I definitely make exceptions for, cause there's still of course, delicious treats I love that have all that in it. Um, but you know, for the most part, I've eliminated that from my diet because it just doesn't serve me. And I think that's part of what you're saying like growing up and realizing what does and doesn't work is a process and there isn't a cookie cutter for everybody. There isn't like a do the keto diet. It's going to work for everyone. You'll find that it's your favorite diet ever. You know, that sounds like an infomercial and, and people's lives aren't infomercials. People aren't, people aren't, uh, you know, products to be sold or, or bought. They, they all have their unique experience and their unique reaction. And, um, like when I work with clients, I, I, I take a food journal from them uh, usually every week and we go over what they're eating and we talk about how they feel after they've eaten this or before they ate it. Then I know what's driven them to eat it and how they felt after. And we can find, I, I had a client that um, didn't know they had a wheat sensitivity and she was constantly having inflammation and, and things in her body and uh, feeling in pain. And she had to wear all these, these special brace things in her shoes because her feet hurt too bad to walk. And they were going to start on a new medication for, uh, for an inflammatory condition. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I got her food journal and I said, have you thought about going gluten-free for a couple of weeks to see how you feel? She was like, oh, I've never thought of that. I'll try it though. So I said, okay, let's try that. 
So it, in a week, maybe she was feeling so much better. And now she's completely gluten free. And, you know, one time she ate something with gluten in it. And the next day she felt the pain like in her hands oh. and her joints. And, and so it's a real thing for some people, but a lot of people don't know it. They just yeah. go through life with sensitivities because they feel like that's the way they've always felt. So it must be normal. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's like, it's so much, it's so interesting to be able to dive into those and find out what you can take away to figure out what, what is causing, causing what, um, not to discount like the, um, the Western medicine or anything like that, but just like in addition to, and these things are very free and accessible free cheap and accessible mm -hmm. you know and like then that's what i had for my son where it's like what are you capable of you know you know and like there's things that i used to think about and how i like learn all these things about diet and i'm like to my son at first i was doing uh, the opposite of what i would do with him sleeping i was like don't eat this this is <coughs> this is really bad for you or like and this is why and he's like dad why can't i have cereal you know and like and then i would explain to him why right and years down the road that didn't teach him any of this stuff he he understands and he could like tell you the the facts or whatever about like certain diet choices but he doesn't he's not invested in that because he doesn't have any meaning behind it he doesn't have like this history that i did of like being hypertensive and having weakness and finding different ways of eating that would make me feel better or gingivitis and things like that right mm -hmm. so like trying to like force all this like not force but just like explain this knowledge away on him actually did the opposite and would just put more and more weight on the back and more and more pressure and he was so far away from it was like giving him medication in some sense because he was so focused on what I think of the food. He wasn't experiencing what the food makes him feel and why he likes certain things and, and stuff like that. You know, he wasn't having his experience. Right. It's really important for people to have that firsthand experience. Very, very few people I've met can just take your word for it and then and then completely understand and, and, and live that way. Nor should they, I think, sometimes, because like, yeah. you know, uh, there's been a lot of evil done in the name of good. It's true. It's true. It's 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 important to be able to experience things for yourself so you can understand what is truth to you, what is mm -hmm. good for you and not just what is accepted as good. And it definitely doesn't discount like scientific thinking or, or any like factual information or anything like that. I just think it has it's like it's not one or the other. You know, it's these things that yeah, come in tandem. Definitely. Um, is there anywhere people could learn more about you, Katie? Yes. Um, I have a website. It is katiehankywellness.com. And uh, you said you had a YouTube channel too? Yes, I do. It's um, The Real Slim Katie. Yeah. All right. And I'll be sure to leave all the links to that in the show notes. You uh, also and offer personal coaching and nutrition coaching, right? Yeah, I, um, nutrition and wellness coaching, and I'm a certified personal trainer. So uh, usually I work with people um, in all of those aspects at once. Sometimes someone will will simply want one, like some nutrition coaching or, or personal training, but um, I offer those services. I also um, help people with uh, mental health struggles or addiction um, issues they're having in their life um, because sometimes those aren't as easily identified or you know, is, is easily apparent when, when I talk to someone before I really get to know them. 
Um, and in addition to that, I, I offer skills coaching usually for youth, uh, for soccer and basketball, uh, where we work, work on different skills, shooting defense, and then the soccer it's, I played goalkeeper. So, but I can coach other positions, but, um, just, you know, how to kick the ball, where, where to be on the field, how to set up plays, what stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and on uh, Facebook, I started a group called alpha females Northwest, which is a, it's like a wellness and empowerment group for women. Um, and we meet usually once a month and we talk about goals in our life, like personal and wellness goals. Um, any struggles we're having, we uh, all either cook something for us or we'll, we'll potluck it. People will bring food and, try to be on the healthier side on that. And then we'll have some friendly competition. Like we'll do arm wrestling. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah. Or we'll do some weightlifting. We'll go on a walk. And it's just, it's really to get community back with, with um, other women who are interested in, in, uh, you know, finding other women who, who want to improve their life, I guess, from the inside out. That's so cool. And competition seems to be an important element within that community. Yes, Absolutely. definitely. It's just friendly competition, you know, mm -hmm. uh, teaching new people how to arm wrestle or, or teaching people how to do different uh, weightlifting moves or, mm -hmm. or things like that is it's um, it's just like community building. And, and that's been missing for two years. So I, I think a lot of people, you know, want to have that connection and mm -hmm. especially women, a lot, a lot of women. I think are feeling isolation and they want to know that there's other people out there that, that, that have goals to, to improve things in their life. And, and, you know, anybody that comes to alpha females Northwest is usually having something they want to improve. I have things I want to improve. Mm -hmm. And so we all talk about our goals individually and collectively as a group. And it's really good because there's a lot of feedback. Everybody gives feedback to each other about their experiences and, their ideas on how something can be worked on or there. And it's, it's really good to, to get a variety of perspectives on everything. Oh, that's excellent. That, that sounds like a wonderful group to be a part of. And I'll make sure to leave the link to all that in the show notes. Oh, and great. Thank you. We should definitely, I was unfortunate we didn't get to it this time, but we should definitely do a round two on your community building um, and how competition and arm wrestling rolls into that. But also like, I think it's amazing that you went from like soccer disappointed because of the outcome where soccer is going for you in college and then like as an adult you all the way back and working with children in soccer again and that's like that's what you would want right like someone who's yeah. like had these experiences had some struggles and like lost the the path in soccer to be with children who are setting their sights you know and, and doing what you love yeah i just i want to i want to give back and and be like a positive a positive influence in really the lives of everybody I meet. Um, but in, in that regard, what you're talking about with the children, just be encouraging, you know, build them up, you know, big them up a little on their strengths. Like, wow, it's a really good kick. You know, maybe next time you can do it this way. And kids really respond well to encouragement. And especially when you can find something they did well, even if there's a critique, if you can, if you can compliment what they've done well, they, they really love it. It really means a lot to them. And it makes them feel like, like they, they're headed in the right direction with this sport. And I, and I think a lot of it is confidence. 
And, and that's where I think confidence is also something that um, is not just automatic. And it's not like it's not there accessible for everyone out the base. Like if I were to be like, I can confidently jump off of a 10 foot ledge or I can confidently speak in front of people. And if I've never done any of that, um, the people you could be like, well, no one should get upset at you if you if you talk and stammer in front of people, which I get that. But it's still embarrassing. And if it weren't embarrassing, then people might do that and not care. And I extrapolate this because in skateboarding, this stuff happens a lot. And in rock climbing and jumping off of ledges, ledges are the best. If there's a 10 foot ledge and you're scared, you got to ask yourself, have you ever jumped off a 10 foot ledge before? And if it's like, yes, then we, we could talk about that. But most of the time it's no. And that's a good thing. You shouldn't just feel the ability to jump off of a 10 foot ledge if you don't know what it's like. So you just regress it and you have to build confidence because confidence is something that you earn socially, you know, um, with yourself, like being in isolation and doing experiences. Because I was like not confident around people. And for me, it's a little harder to build that than other people in my experience. But if I when I put myself out there, it changes over time. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm gonna go talk to Katie like a one-on-one thing. Yeah, I got this. Oh, I'm gonna go talk in front of a crowd. Yeah, I could do this. And it's like I could look back at my past and I could recount what it was like. And it's easier for me to imagine the outcome. Therefore, I'm confident. Right. And, and like, it's that practice thing I was talking about, like everything is in the practice, not necessarily the outcome. Like you want to be confident someday, and you'll probably get there, but until you practice it, until you practice what it takes to become confident, like you said, you're not just going to wake up that way. Um, so it has to be a daily practice. And that's with everything. That's with the way you eat, the way you move, the way you think, questioning the beliefs you thought you had, being able to really look at yourself with a discerning eye and, and, and look at the things you don't like and, and have the courage to change them. And um, it can be scary sometimes, but that's how you build the confidence is through the practice every day of, of waking up, not being afraid that, you know, maybe someone won't work out today. Maybe it will, but it doesn't matter. You're still going to stick to that practice every day of, of, you know, looking within yourself and, and, and trying to, to right the wrongs and, and improve the things that you know that you can improve. Thank you so much, Katie, for sharing your story. I really appreciate that. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great conversation. Absolutely. Well, I hope you have a wonderful day. Okay, Katie? Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast featuring Katie Hankey. Her story is deeply moving to me, especially because, you know, my family history really struggled with a lot of the similar stuff that she was struggling with. And it's become my life's mission to find a way to um, find equanimity and, and harmony in my own life. And that seems kind of trivial and like, you know, cliche in a lot of ways, but people around me struggled deeply. And I saw how they'd get caught up in these same patterns over the course of years. And they felt like it was so beyond themselves, these things that they struggled with, but it was all the chains of their own mind. And there's a deluge of books that are wonderful on these. One that comes to mind is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, you know? Um, and I'd like to think that, you know, even even in, as I die, I, I can find a way to um, achieve some sense of nirvana. And not, 
not so dr- dramatic as such, but just to be okay. Even when I'm angry, afraid, sad, and even happy. How do I ride the line? How do we all do that? Find our functionality. Move away from dysfunction. I love all of you so, so much. If you want to support the show, you could head over to the website, becominghumanpodcast.com, share it with a friend, drop a comment, or even subscribe to the Patreon, where you get um, special art drops every month and a bonus episode where I read my favorite book of the month to y'all. I hope you have a wonderful month. I'll see you next time. Bye.